0: Good morning. Good morning. morning. On February 5th, 2017, the American football fans were treated to one of the best Super Bowls that took place between the New England Patriots on one side when they played the Atlanta Falcons on the other side. And if you're a member of the completely voluntary Patriots nation, you went through a roller coaster of emotions. It started with excitement and then nervousness. And then puzzlement as the Falcons scored touchdown after touchdown. And then hopelessness by the end of the first half. And the score was 28 to 3, down 25 points. At the beginning of the second half, you were in in utter disbelief. And then it moved to trepidation, then hope, as Tom Brady uh, scored eight-point touchdown after eight-point touchdown, and then nervousness, and then surprise, and then ecstasy. And then the opposite set of reactions happened to all those who were not part of Patriots nation. And the score was, at the end, 31 to 28, the Patriots winning their fifth Super Bowl title. The last week of Jesus' life. And the disciples of Jesus went through a rollercoaster of emotions during that last week. It started on Palm Sunday when Jesus was welcomed as a king to Jerusalem. And so their emotions went from being victorious and celebratory and happy and peaceful and calm and cautious. And then as the week went on, it changed to dismay and anger and disbelief and disillusionment and disappointment and then hopelessness. And fear as Jesus was crucified and their hope was all gone this morning in a sermon entitled the bridge of faith we will look at the question of doubt and belief usually by the end of the sermon prep I'm down to four titles for the sermon and I choose one of them But at the end of this sermon prep, I couldn't decide between two of these titles, and so I put both the titles there. It's called The Bridge of Faith or Scarred for Life. You can choose either one of the two. Our text is John chapter 20 and verses 24 through 29. John 20, 24 through 29. We will read the passage right now. I, I hope to pick up certain things out of this passage as we go along, so let's read the passage to know the story in its entirety. John chapter 20, verse 24 through 29. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. We're going to go this morning to a journey with Thomas as he goes from disbelief to belief. And I want to show four steps along the way that we all would take when we go from not believing something to believing something. At first we start with ignorance. It may be ignorance, indifference or intolerance about whatever the fact is. In verse 24 it says now Thomas one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came so Thomas wasn't there he didn't have first-hand information he didn't see Jesus and we all start without first-hand information most of the things we believe in we don't have first-hand information now if it's something that we are ignorant about so for example Uh, Ayurvedic medicine. Most people in the West are ignorant about Ayurvedic medicine, which originated in India 3000, 4000 years ago. So, if you have to believe in Ayurvedic or Eastern medicine, you start with a point from a point of ignorance and then you see evidence until you come to believe in Ayurvedic medicine. Or it may be something that we are indifferent to. So, for example, you don't wake up every morning and think about Alexander the Great. In fact, we don't even care about Alexander the Great because we are indifferent to it. It doesn't really matter. Or it may be something that we are intolerant about. If it's an atheist, he is intolerant about God, and so that's his starting point before he comes to belief in God. So that's where we all start, whether it's ignorance, indifference, or intolerance. And secondly, we will look at the available evidence so if we have to believe in anything, we start. We have a starting point, and then we look at the available evidence that is available to believe whatever the topic is, whether it's Ayurvedic medicine or Alexander the Great or God. In this case, I'm going to look at the available evidence that Thomas had available to him and that we have today available to us to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me very quickly go through four evidences to prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first one is the prophecy of the resurrection. So in Matthew chapter 16 verse 21 it reads, from that time on Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus himself says that. I'm going to be killed and I'm going to come back to life three days later. If anybody of you can do that, I'll believe in you. The second evidence that we have of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what I will call the first report. The first report. Let me read five quick verses. I'll skip in the middle, but it's in Matthew chapter 28. It talks about what happened first to show the resurrection of Jesus Christ. After the Sabbath, verse one, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was an earthquake. An angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified, he is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he lay. And this thing is important. He says, then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead. So before the disciples saw the empty tomb, the women saw the empty tomb. Now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the Christian doctrine on which the entire Christian faith revolves around. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, if Christ was not raised, your faith is futile. If Christ was not raised, we are wasting our time on Sunday morning in church. For that crucial doctrine of the Christian faith, the first people that were entrusted with transmitting that information were a set of women. That is incredible to think that in first century Jewish culture, which was a significantly patriarchal culture, they would not accept the testimony of women. But the fact that the Bible records the truth as it is proves to us the veracity of the Christian account of the Bible. That it was indeed women who saw the empty tomb first if it was a made-up story they could have easily put the names of the disciples there and nobody would have questioned it but this was the truth this was the actual account the third evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is the empty tomb in Luke chapter 24 verse 22 some of our women amazed us they went to the tomb early in the morning they didn't find his body then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said but they did not see Jesus This is the most important evidence that the tomb of Jesus was empty. The tomb of every other religious leader was occupied, is occupied. But the tomb of Jesus is empty. You see, from three days after the death of Christ, the disciples started talking about the empty tomb. First, privately, they were scared as to see what would happen, but then publicly... So 50 days after the death of Christ, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, there was this huge public proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ such that the entire city came to know about it. If the Jewish people, Jewish leaders were concerned, they could have said, wow, he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the tomb, open the tomb, and find the body of Jesus Christ there. But no, there was no body of Jesus. The tomb was empty. About 10 years ago, I was speaking on this topic and I I looked up to see if there were any studies about the degeneration of bodies. And what I'm about to say next is completely gross, so you guys have to bear with me. I looked up videos to see if there's any degeneration videos, and those days, There was this video about 10 years ago, which I found from some museum in Australia, some research museum in Australia, that showed the body of a pig degenerating. And the reason they took a pig is because pigs and humans have similar body mass ratio. Obviously, it's different if you're an American pig. I mean, it's got much more body mass ratio. I mean, uh, fat muscle ratio. Um, but for all intents and purposes, humans and pigs have similar muscle fat ratio. So what they did was they took a pig, it was dead, and they videoed it for 50 days. And at the end of 50 days, do you think the pig's body had disappeared? No. The body was, uh, yes, it was degenerated, but still there. Last week, I was looking for the same video again. I couldn't find it. But what I did stumble upon on YouTube was that now they have degenerating human bodies. And I don't mean to downplay the fact that people have donated their bodies for research. But there are videos where they've taken of human bodies, dead and now degenerating. And you can see that even after 50 days, the body hasn't disappeared, it's there. So on the day of Pentecost, if the authorities wanted, they could have thrown open the tomb of Jesus and said, nope, you guys are wrong, the body is still here. But they couldn't do that because Jesus had risen. The fourth evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the transformation of the disciples. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. They were scared. They were were hopeless. They were in disbelief. And then overnight, they change, something changes so that now they have the courage and the boldness to stand up against the Jewish authorities. What happened? How many of you, and I don't want you to raise your hands, how many of you buy products that are endorsed by athletes? Don't raise your hand. Some some people buy products that are endorsed by athletes. So Steph Curry, the forward of the Golden State Warriors, he endorses Under Armour. But do we know that he gets millions for the endorsement? Right. I mean, if if Nike paid him more millions than what Under Armour pays him, then he'll switch to Nike. It's not a big deal. It's it's just a matter of money. You pay me more, he will endorse it. Suppose Under Armour says instead, well, instead of the millions that I'm going to give you, or that that we're going to give you, if you like a product so much, will you be willing to lose a toe? to endorse our product what do you think steve curry is going to say no i mean no way yes he likes the product but he doesn't believe in it that much do you have any belief for which you are willing to exchange a hand for do you have any belief that you hold on to so firm That if somebody gave you an option of believing that belief versus losing your arm, you will say, take my arm, I hold on to this belief. Ladies and gentlemen, every single disciple of Jesus Christ, except for John the Apostle who wrote this book, died for their faith. Every single one of them. They were given two options. One option was, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Christian faith the other option was your death and they chose death because they believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ any person would be willing to give his life if they believed the truth if they saw the truth any person would be willing to give their life for a lie if they thought that was the truth but there is no person who would be willing to give their life for a lie knowing that it is a lie. The fact that the disciples all gave their lives showed that they had come face to face with Jesus Christ and seen him resurrected from the grave. The transformation of the apostles from weak. Afraid people to courageous people shows that they had indeed met the risen lord, and that is why the reaction by Thomas was completely unbelievable. You see, he had all this evidence he was with the disciples sitting in the in that house that day, and then he chooses to go grocery shopping. he goes grocery shopping, buys some vegetables and some Heavy cream and by the time he comes back Jesus had come and gone and now he sees the transformation of the disciples right in front of his face and he chose not to believe and he went seven eight days choosing not to believe in spite of seeing the transformation of the rest of the disciples what do we do with the available evidence in order to believe? And so we come thirdly to the leap of faith. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. No matter how much evidence we have, At some point, we have to take a leap of faith, no matter how much evidence we have. And the reason for that is there is no point at which we have 100% evidence, unless we have hands-on, first-hand evidence, right? So so let's say, for example, that belief is at 100%, and you're starting at 0%. If I gave you 50% evidence, then you use 50% leap of faith to get to the belief. If I gave you 20% evidence, you need 80% leap of faith to believe whatever the fact is. If I gave you 80% evidence, you need 20% leap of faith to get to the belief. You see, the more evidence I have, the more evidence I give you, the less the leap of faith. But at some point, you have to take a leap of faith, no matter what you believe in. Let's say that you turn on the TV, and you saw a Indian man, East Indian man, with a straggly beard, and sunken eyes, and rotten teeth. And he's telling about the goodness of Ayurvedic medicine. OK? Are you likely to believe? No, oh, I mean, no. So that's the evidence you have. So the end belief is Ayurvedic medicine. You are at 0%. Okay. What he told you on TV, that's not moved you much. But let me give you some more evidence. I was in India for two and a half decades. That's where I grew up. I came here. I went to American medical school, learned the Western medical system, which is 150 years old. And I am now telling you about the benefits of Ayurvedic medicine, which is 3,000 years old. And just for fun, I throw in the fact that my aunt, my dad's older sister, had a brain tumor and got, and still alive, and got cured with Ayurvedic medicine. So you see, now I've given you more evidence. So with the increased evidence, there is a much lesser leap of faith that we need to make to believe Ayurvedic medicine at some point we have to exercise faith and that's why jesus said stop doubting and believe because doubt can derail the journey to belief very quickly let me look into what is doubt there are three kinds of doubts that was mentioned by gary habermas at liberty university he said there is intellectual doubt intellectual doubt is an intellectual question that you have about whatever the belief is. So if, for example, I was talking about Ayurvedic medicine, you have some questions about it. How does it work? What do you need to do? What are the, what studies are there about it? are there examples? Are there testimonies? That is all intellectual doubt. You're asking legitimate questions and you should, and we need to have intellectual doubt. But the second group or the second kind is called emotional doubt. Emotional doubt, and this is based on experience. It's the most common kind of doubt. If our lives were going smoothly, no problem. We, we trust God, we, we believe in God, no problem. But the moment, let's say, you know, your car breaks down, or somebody dies, or somebody has a diagnosis of cancer, or, or something goes wrong, then we have emotional doubt. We don't have intellectual doubt. We still believe everything about the Christian faith, but now we have emotional doubt, and we question, does God love us? Is God fulfilling his plan through my life? We question his power. We question his purpose. We question his plan. We have emotional doubt. That doubt is classically seen in John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus. He announced he was the MC at the party where Jesus was the guest speaker. He announced Jesus. And look what he says. Once he got put into prison, he asked this question. Luke chapter 7, verse 20. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Wow. Emotional doubt. Everybody goes through it. Everybody. The moment something goes wrong, we have questions, emotional questions. When I preach the gospel in India, for example, or in the East, I, give, I talk about the evidence for the Christian faith and why Jesus is the right way from a logical standpoint. But then I get this question. Yes, you have told me about the evidence for the Christian faith. But if I become a believer, I will be kicked out of my family. You see, that's not an intellectual question. That's not intellectual doubt. That is an emotional question. That is emotional doubt. So how do we solve emotional doubts? Intellectual doubts I can solve by giving evidence. How do I solve emotional doubt? C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, writes these words. This rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come anyway. That's why faith is such a necessary virtue, unless you teach your moods where to get off. You can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist, but just a creature dithering to and fro with its, its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. So what do you do when you have emotional doubts? You have to tell your moods where to get off. And remember the evidence for the intellectual doubt. If you don't take control of your emotional doubt, your emotional doubt will take control of you to the point that you think that those doubts are intellectual doubts. And those emotional reasons will be the reasons why you reject a belief and then long-standing emotional doubt would lead to the next kind of doubt which is a dangerous doubt called the volitional doubt this is the most serious doubt in this doubt you make a choice to doubt doesn't matter what the evidence is you say i choose to doubt and let me read this verse And we have the example of Thomas in verse 25, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. That is volitional doubt. He is choosing to have doubt. He is choosing not to believe. Why do we not believe some things? Is it because of the lack of evidence? There are people that still believe that the Earth is flat. Pythagoras from the sixth century BC talked about the Earth being a sphere. Sixth century BC, 2,600 years ago. And still there are people that believe that the Earth is flat. What kind of evidence do you need to believe anything? We choose to believe what we want to believe. If you want to believe something, you need minimal evidence, right? Let's say that I showed you one study that said that chocolate is absolutely amazing for your body. One study. Do you need a second study? No, you just need that one study. You need minimal evidence because you want to believe something. But let's say I gave you 15 studies that said that red meat is bad for you. Are you going to stop eating red meat tomorrow? No, because you want to eat red meat, so it doesn't matter what the evidence shows. The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is incredibly powerful. There is more evidence of the resurrection of Jesus than many other things we believe in. And so, fourthly, we come to belief. Thomas had convincing evidence, but he did not believe. He wanted that fifth hands-on first-hand experience and so jesus comes and gives him that experience and thomas says to him in verse 28 my lord and my god he believes after he saw you know we have enough evidence of the christian faith to believe we are not at zero there is let's say there is 75 percent evidence Yes, we don't have 100% evidence because Jesus is not here for us to see his scarred hands and side. That would have been 100% evidence. But we have about 75% evidence to make the leap of faith. Thomas said, I will not believe until I see, until I feel. And Jesus humored him. Why did Jesus humor him, you ask? Well, there are millions of reasons why Jesus gave him that extra evidence for Thomas to believe, but let me show you one reason, and that reason is standing in front of you. You see, Thomas, St. Thomas, came to my home state in A.D. 52, and when he came to my home state, Paul had just returned from his second missionary journey. The Synoptic Gospels were written. This book, the Gospel of John, was not written yet. Parts of Acts, Galatians, Thessalonians, and James were written, but the rest of the New Testament was not written. And he came to a place 75 miles from where I was born. And he preached about the Jesus whose side he had touched. And he wanted people to believe on the available evidence, not 100% evidence. But 75% evidence. And then he went to the neighboring state, and in St. Thomas Mount near Chennai, South India, he was killed for his faith. That mount still is there, where where St. Thomas was killed for his faith. The first-hand evidence that Jesus gave Thomas was the scars that he had. And that is fascinating because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 42 following, it talks about the resurrected body. What kind of bodies will we have once we go to heaven? And this is what it says. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. When we are raised with our brand new bodies, we will not have any scars. It's a clean body. I remember when I was back in Kansas City working at the Truman Medical Center Hospital, we would work, I was on call every three days. So every third day, I would work from 5 in the morning, all day, all night, till 8 p.m. the next day. Well, 8 8 p.m. the next night. And so the night that I was on call, which was every third night, without fail, every night around midnight, I would get a call. And we would be in the ER at the other hospital, or we would have just come back to the call room. And we would get a call that would give the number of the children's hospital, which was two blocks away. And the moment I saw that number, I would think, oh my goodness now I need to go because I know exactly what it was and it was always around 12 o'clock I would walk two blocks go to the hospital and there would be this little kid 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 10 years old with a dog bite to the face it would be the ear hanging out or the nose hanging out or the cheek or the lips or the eyelids or whatever it was hanging out because for two seconds they did something to the dog or the dog did something to them and boom the face is changed forever And we would spend the next four hours trying to stitch everything back together. And invariably, I would get a question from the parents. And they would look me in the eye and say, is my little daughter going to have scars? I would wait three seconds for that question to sink in for them. And I would say, yes. There is no way there's not going to be scars. Yes, you can come back six months later, I can do a scar revision surgery and try to minimize the scars or minimize the perception of the scars, but the scars remain. Once you make a cut on your face, the scars remain. Or you can do dermabrasion six months later, but the scars remain. The scars always remain until we go to heaven when the scars will disappear. And that is the fascinating thing. That when we are in heaven without our scars, Jesus will be in heaven with his scars. I wonder why. Maybe it is to remind us for eternity to show us what it took for us to get there. And so in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5, it reads, And by his wounds we are healed. He was scarred for life. For the rest of his eternal life, he was scarred. He was scarred for life, our life, my life, and your life. I'm going to give the opportunity for anybody to respond to this sermon. I want to give the opportunity to two groups of people to respond to the sermon. If you have emotional or volitional doubt that is preventing you from coming to an initial belief in Jesus Christ, you can pray with me. My prayer is that you will come to that realization that Thomas had and say, my Lord and my God. Secondly, if you have emotional doubt that prevents you from a continuous, strong faith in Jesus Christ, you can also pray with me. Let's pray. If there's anybody here who's never invited Jesus into your life, maybe you've had doubts before. Maybe you had intellectual doubts before you were given the evidence. And maybe you have emotional doubts. Maybe you have volitional doubts. You can pray a prayer, something like this, and if it's something that you mean from the bottom of your heart, God will answer it. You can pray, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner, and I need you. Thank you for the overwhelming evidence of your life and your death and your resurrection. I ask you to come into my life and make me complete. Help me to live a life that's worthy of you. Thank you for the evidence that you have given that I can believe. Help me to throw myself into your arms. In Jesus' name I pray.